Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hi, Claire. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm a bit unimpressed by this weather. Just as lockdown starts to ease, the skies are grey and we're reminded that we're in Scotland and not, in fact, in Bermuda or somewhere else. I'm actually sitting in my house with a coat on because I find that when I sit still too long, I get really cold in this weather. And that happens more and more in lockdown as I seem to move less and kind of sit still more. How about you? Warm, at least? Yeah, it's it's quite cosy. I'm in the open book office this morning just to make sure I get a bit of peace and quiet from homeschooling. Um, So I've sneaked out to the bottom of the garden and I'm hiding down here and it's quite warm. We have have your blankets arrived for the gazebo. We had a we had a coffee in Claire's newly formed gazebo yesterday, and you did say you were ordering some blankets. They haven't arrived quite yet, but I will keep you posted. Now it was really nice. I uh, I had my birthday last week, and uh, part of my birthday present was the setting up of a little gazebo in the garden so that I could still see friends for a socially distant coffee. Uh, in the rain although before you arrived for the coffee I did have to get the broom handle and push the roof of the gazebo up to make sure all the water that had pooled in it didn't land on either of us during our 20 minute coffee break. It did feel like yeah pouring rain you know sitting under this gazebo it was lovely to see you Claire but it did remind me of being at the Edinburgh Book Festival in August (laughs) slightly shivery listening to the rain on the tent sort of above. So this morning we've got um, we've got a couple of lovely things to read. We've got a piece by Peter Ross from the Imagine a Country book. Thanks to Canongate for giving us use of these materials from the Imagine a Country. It's a book of essays edited by Val McDermott and Joe Sharp. And then we're going to finish off with a poem um, by a poet I love, Naomi Shihab Nye, called So Much Happiness. Will we just crack on? Will we get started? Yeah, let's do that. Okay, I'll do the first bit. On 16 September 2010, Benedict XVI came to Glasgow and celebrated an open-air mass, the first time a pope had visited Scotland since 1982. The occasion drew a crowd of around 70,000, among them the Scottish press pack, on hand to record Benedict's stern words against alcohol, his encounter with a baby in a pink romper suit whom he kissed through the open window of the Mobile, and the presence of Susan Boyle who sang... How great thou art. I wasn't there. Despite being on the staff of Scotland on Sunday, I was allowed instead to spend the day of the Pope's visit hanging out with a group of unemployed guys who'd gathered by the Dalmarnock Bridge with rods and lines and bait, as they did most Thursdays, to have a drink and attempt to catch roach, dace, purse, eels, barbel, trout, and that mythic beast of the Clyde, salmon. Here, then, was a counter-narrative. Instead of covering the fisher of men, I would write about the men who fish. Almost ten years on, would it be possible for a Scottish newspaper to be so creative, some might say cavalier, with its resources? In the Scotland of my imagination, yes. My ideal country would have a media with means and desire to cover the minutiae of life. That means the councils. That means the courts. But it also means the tiny moments that make up the life of a nation. The child that goes hungry because her parents don't have the money. The woman who, having converted to Islam, is making her first Ramadan fast. The men who fish. 
We must, of course, cover the big stories, national politics, major trials, the never-ending soap opera of Fitba. But journalism also has a vital task in simply recording life as it is lived. Let us not forget to beat the drum for the humdrum. Will we stop there? I think I might have said Fitba in a very American way, have I? <laughs> so apologies to all you non-Americans out there. That's Scottish for football. I remember that day. I don't know what you were doing that day, but I know what I was doing. Well, I actually remember the visit of Pope John Paul much more clearly than Benedict's visit because I was taken to Bella Houston Park for the open air mass that Pope John Paul celebrated and was not very happy about it because it was sports day at school. Oh! And I missed, I must have been primary six, maybe. I was extremely upset and disappointed to miss sports day, somewhat missing the point of uh, the whole occasion. I also remember it was incredibly hot and I was allowed to have as many ice lollies as I wanted that day to try and keep cool. But I don't so much remember the visit of Benedict. What were you doing? I watched him go through Edinburgh. My recollection is more about the Pope Mobile and being kind of not underwhelmed in the sense that you knew there was a holy person inside it, but just being kind of acknowledging that, you know, he's a small man, actually, um, and the kind of humility of that in a way. And it's a really strange contraption, the Pope Mobile. The whole purpose of it is to put someone in the spotlight. And that image of him kissing the baby in the pink romper suit through the window, I do remember that. I think that must have been across all the news reports. I was just going to ask you if you got a sense of whether Peter Ross was slightly miffed at not being part of that entourage of press. I mean, presumably that was the story of the day, or whether he felt he'd had a bit of a lucky escape heading off to do a story about men who fish. At first, I thought he might have been a little miffed, but then looking at what he would like his country to be, which we can get into in a minute, this idea that we should be covering all the minutiae of life, it makes me think maybe on reflection he wasn't. And, and the cynic in me wonders why a newspaper on the day of a Pope's visit would send someone out to cover people fishing. So I wonder whether it is obviously a decision not to cover the Pope's visit. Did you think he was miffed? No, I made the assumption he didn't make the cut. Well, because when he says, here's the counter narrative, I wondered whether that was a decision to spend time and resources on something else. But then let's talk a little bit about this idea of covering the minutiae of life, because there are journals, you know, I think of the New Yorker and Harper's and the States of doing a much better job of covering these slower stories, the stories about what actually happens in life. But I think the reality is people don't buy newspapers to read about the girl making her first fast. I don't know about you. That sort of idea of covering the tiny moments in life made me think of the local press set up in Scotland where there are lots and lots of local newspapers where many of the journalists cut their teeth. Certainly where I grew up in Carnoustie, there was a paper that still is printed called The Guide and Gazette. Its sole purpose was to cover the minutiae of life. And I still have clippings that my mum kept of me winning the Arbroath Festival Country Dancing Cup with the team from my school and my dad getting a hole in one and appearing in The Guide and Gazette. My sister carrying a flag down the high street 
street as the flag bearer for the brownies on Friendship Day. And they now run this sort of memory recall, a bit like Facebook's memories page, where every week they post a couple of pictures from a previous issue. And quite a lot of my friends that I'm still in touch with will pick up on those pictures and send them on to me if I'm in it or anyone I know is in it. So those sort of papers, I think, still do that job. But you're right, certainly the press, as we would know it in terms of the sort of mainstream press, are not, are not doing that. I wonder too, though, if that change in time, you know, whether that Facebook and Twitter and other things have changed the way that we perceive that kind of minutiae. We're much better at announcing it ourselves. Just one question I had about these tiny moments is if, in fact, they are not the tiny moments and they are the most important moments. I remember having this conversation with my dad and him saying, you had to pick out 10 moments in your life it's hard to pick out 10 you know that you really remember that aren't the kind of big moments because every day does kind of bleed into the next I think it was with sadness he was saying that no matter what you do things go you know so the point isn't to make them memorable but to enjoy them as they come and go yeah shall I read on yeah this is not about nostalgia when newspapers were swimming in money They did not always use it well. Our media has never been good at covering this country's ethnic mix, for instance. Coverage of people from minority faiths and cultures, when they have been noticed at all, has tended to focus on crises, racial tension and the like. In an ideal Scotland, journalists would have good contacts among these communities. Even better, they would come from them and would thus be able to report stories which did not have a race angle and were simply interesting tales of whatever sort. There is a philosophical idea here. A national newspaper ought to mirror the society it seeks to represent, but also a financial imperative. If you want to sell papers to people, write about them. That goes beyond race and religion. Scotland's quality papers spend too much time chasing a middle-class audience which just isn't that into them anymore. We also cede ground to the tabloids too easily. I have found, in many years of writing about people in working-class communities, that those people enjoy the stories when they read them. They like the same things everyone else likes. A good quote, a neat thought, vivid reporting elegant turns of phrase. Yet the day after the story in which they appear has been published, they are back to the record and sun. There is an unfortunate perception that the qualities are not for them. The other day, I went into a corner shop in Stirling, near my gran's old flat, and bought the Times. That's for the brainy folk, said the woman behind the counter. This attitude is such a shame. It's just not true, and we need to address it. If I was the editor of the Times, the Herald, the Scotsman, I would want it to be known that my paper is for everyone. I would want to sell copies in Scotland's towns and in the less affluent parts of the cities, not just in the former white-collar heartlands. How? It would take work, thought, energy, and yes, money. Digital has come to stand in Scottish journalism for a sort of inevitable slide towards a future in which people no longer buy newspapers at all. It is also used as a disingenuous excuse for disinvestment, job losses 
as if digital content did not need reporters and photographers to create it. Again, I am not a nostalgist, but I have an old-fashioned view that people will read, value and pay for your product if you make it attractive enough. And how is that attractiveness to be reckoned? Newspapers have, traditionally, been driven by certain values and qualities. Speed, aggression, outrage. Those are all important. But the journalists and editors of my imagined future Scotland would bear in mind three further watchwords. Beauty, compassion and love. Well, I think he might not be a nostalgist, but he's definitely an idealist. It's very, very difficult to imagine a Scotland where the newspaper industry is not just about how best to sell papers. It implies a kind of idealism that we should be thinking about. I mean, it's the kind of thing we love to do at Open Book, right? Think about what voices it is we want to hear from and what we're not getting to hear. And then we have the great gift of being able to try and make that happen. But that's just not how a business runs. So I guess I think in some ways it's the difference between a charity and a business. So maybe the whole structure needs to change if what we want is what he describes. And this idea that the quality papers are chasing a middle class audience, which just isn't that into them anymore. I wonder why the middle class audience just isn't that into them anymore. Is it because their perception of being a quality paper isn't actually as accurate as they might like to think? I don't read the paper anymore. I read it. I read things online. So I think the reality is our habits change, right? So the way that we take on information changes. Yeah, I mean, we used to have a newspaper delivered. We used to have the Scotsman delivered to the house every day and that was part of my daily routine to read it. We stopped doing that partly because time pressure, but partly because I felt that the paper was no longer reporting what I wanted to read or what I felt was giving me a true representation of what was going on in the world that was very Scotland focused, not outward looking enough. Just for my personal taste, you know, I'm sure there will be people listening to this podcast who disagree strongly with what I'm saying, but um, I just felt for, for the information that I wanted, I wasn't able to find it anymore there. But I do kind of wonder this idea that the the tabloids too also kind of focus on different stories that people want to hear. I find the tabloids incredibly divisive. I find that they publish really sensationalist headlines and um, articles. And all it does is kind of entrench people in the views that they maybe already hold or have heard about. But maybe that's wrong because I don't read them properly. I think that's a recent thing as well. And I should declare an interest here. My dad was a reporter for the Daily Record for a number of years. But his reporting was all investigative journalism. And he um, won a number of awards for work that he did in terms of covering the, there was a tanker ran aground in Sulinvo. And there was, he spent a lot of time in Lockerbie when the Lockerbie air disaster happened. But at that time, it was what I would consider proper reporting, proper stories, rather than now when I pick up a tabloid, there's not actually that much news in it. You don't come away better informed. But again, I don't know whether that's a recent thing or whether that's my preconceived ideas. And now I don't read a newspaper of any variety very frequently and tend to just quickly click through the independence headlines and see generally what's going on and maybe have a look at the BBC News site, which brings its own biases and perspectives. I wonder what your dad would make of the new, you know, um, way of journalism, both online and in print, because it feels like the print 
papers have had to be almost more clamoring to kind of get the attention or get the sales. But I also think, you know, the way that we inhabit the world has changed more. It's tiny bite-sized chunks. You know, we our attention spans, even at our generation, is, are quite short, let alone the generations coming up behind us. I think he would say, and he has said in conversations we've had about this sort of thing, that he feels there's a lot of what he would call lazy journalism now. So, not checking your sources, not getting your quotes from the person, that that sort of wearing out the shoe leather, learning your trade sort of journalism. Yeah, whereas now it feels much more about the characters of the, of the journalists themselves. And maybe that's because they're not doing their homework, as he would say, and just kind of cobbling together. They're almost like op-ed people, you know, who themselves are required to be characters of a sort. I often wonder what, you know, what they're really like in person, because, yeah, it feels like they have to almost be larger than life and have these views and hold these views and you can almost guess what they're going to say when you see their name on the byline which feels unfortunate really because I suspect in your dad's day it would have been about the story and not about the view so I feel like journalism now is so much about taking bits of information that are already in the in the stratosphere and helping us think about them in a way funneling them through someone's brain that we know and trust which is different than feeling like you're getting proper reporting of an incident or an issue and then being allowed to form your own opinion having been presented with the facts yeah yeah interesting piece though I really enjoyed it yeah me too it's definitely been thought-provoking especially as someone who doesn't who's not a journalist and you know doesn't read very many papers anymore shall we swap over to the poem yes let's do that so it's called so much happiness by Naomi Shihab Nye it is difficult to know what to do with so much happiness with sadness there's something to rub against a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. When the world falls in around you, you have pieces to pick up, something to hold in your hands like ticket stubs or change. But happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house, singing, and disappears when it wants to. You're happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches and love even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens and scratched records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug. You raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible. You take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way, be known. I love that idea of the night sky being something simply to hold up, being known because it's the thing that holds up the moon. This idea, you are not responsible, though, for me, I'm not sure I agree with that. I really do. I feel like, well, I think maybe, yeah, maybe maybe we are responsible for our own happiness. I love that idea that, you know, you were happy in a treehouse and then you were happy, you know, living above a quarry. I think there is a conflict there, isn't there? Because that seems to me to say you make your own happiness. Yeah. You choose to be happy or not happy. 
Or you choose you choose an element. There's a part of it that's in your control. I, I don't think you can entirely choose, right, I am going to be happy today. But I think there are times when you can put a twist on things to see the best in it. But I think you have to be really strong. You have to be in a strong place to do that. I can't do that every day. I don't feel that I'm in control of my own happiness every day. But there are definitely days when I think, right, I can look at this two ways glass half empty or glass half full and make a decision that influences a bit how I feel. So I would say I'm not entirely responsible, but I'm a little bit responsible. I mean, of course, there are things that happen in your life that make you unhappy, of course, and we're not always in control of them. We're often not in control of them. Yeah, I do feel like it's a question of character a lot of the time. I remember a couple who were friends of ours years ago who kept moving, you know, because she just never liked the city that they were in. I mean, like half a dozen cities later, it would be like, oh, this place is terrible because of X, Y, or Z. I remember eventually thinking, it's not the city. It's you looking for something that you're not finding. And actually, it's probably been under your nose the whole time. And I do think that thing that you can wake up over a quarry of noise and dust, and that alone can't make you unhappy, that we're kind of, we do choose how to see things, I think. And we forget that we have the power to do that. You know, some of the people that we work with in Open Book lead really difficult, what I would call very difficult lives, have had real difficulty of circumstance, um, difficult family situations, have had to leave home. And yet they exhibit more happiness in the sessions that I run with them than a lot of people I know who are incredibly well off. It's not just about physical belongings, but have had, you know, very stable upbringings and are financially stable and from the outside look like they ought to be a lot happier. So I don't think that it's necessarily linked to the things that happen to us, if that makes sense. The idea of with sadness, there is something to rub against, a wound to tend with lotion and cloth. I can recognise that sense of in adversity, there's things that you can be doing. Whereas in happiness, there's much more a sense of just having to, to sit back, enjoy the moment because it might not necessarily be there forever. Yeah, and I do feel like as, pe- as humans, we're sort of trained to focus on the sadness in some ways. I mean, I don't know about you, but the banter with other people, if something terrible's happened, that's the thing that you report. Well, we quite often are the two of us, but, you know, oh, I've had a brilliant day, you know, nothing much has happened. I made cake and blah, 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 because it's always about the cake. I noted that there was cake in this poem, by the way. I knew I had to mention that, coffee cake, as it were. But, you know, or whatever it is, but, you know, there's less to hold on to, less to describe in that sense of happiness, unless it's, you know, a huge occasion. Whereas it does feel like it's really easy to say, oh, God, you know, this happened today and it was really annoying, even if it's a small thing. You know, the small annoyances, the small unhappinesses are really easy to point out and pick up and describe, rather than saying, God, the sun was shining and I... Nobody interrupted me while I was reading my book and having cake in the window this morning. That's not the kind of thing I would say to you, but I might say to you, oh my God, the kids were, wouldn't let me get through the first chapter of that book that I really needed to read for us to discuss or whatever. So it feels like we're inclined to. Do you think that part of that is to do with not knowing how someone else is doing and not necessarily wanting to boast as it were, not wanting to be that smug, look, isn't everything great in my life, look how happy I am? an awareness of that not everybody might be feeling the same and therefore how do you responding in a way that presents yourself as completely content and happy and everything going well how does that impact other people yeah I don't yeah I think that could be and I also think there's a cultural thing there because one of my first senses about living in Scotland particularly probably because the children were quite little before then was having a conversation with one of my sisters in law saying it's remarkable no one can ever be good at anything here but i remember thinking you know in the states 
people are much more open about things that are that their kids are good at or you know whatever they'll just say oh you know you're really musical and let's just pick music because that's you know my kids play lots of instruments so they might describe me as musical now I don't play any instruments but I did when I was a kid and I kind of can read music a bit so but already that's 15 years of me living in Scotland where I say I'm not really musical I can read music a bit whereas in the states I probably would say yeah yeah I'm musical I don't play anything anymore, but I spent a lot of time as a kid playing. So there, there is a, I remember feeling very much like you had to hide things or you weren't allowed to say this child has a, is particularly good at art or whatever. I don't mean she's going to be an artist. She's not a Picasso, but she's good at it. That already makes me embarrassed saying that out loud just now because it's, it's not accepted. So I think there's a cultural difference too there. Yeah, and I think it's very stark between America and Scotland in that particular case. Um, it would be frowned on you to, as it were, blow your own trumpet or talk yourself up or say you're good at something. That that would be deemed to be precocious or arrogant. I mean, certainly I would have a sense of my parents if I was in company and said I was good at something or my parents frowning and being displeased with me. I think that's a huge shame, you know, because nobody is saying like, you know, that my kid is going to be a Picasso. But it's just acknowledging that they take joy in something and seem to have a talent in it. You know, whereas in the States, it's much, I mean, it's over the top probably, but every kid's talented in some way, you know, which is of course over the top too. But at least it's errors on the side of joy, if that makes sense, in giving people confidence and, and probably too much so that, you know, kids feel that they don't have to work at things and are either good at them or not good at them. So there are pitfalls there too, but I would rather err on the side of joy, you know, and say, gosh, you seem to have a talent for that, you know, or that's really joyful or that's really positive. For example, example, in America, friends were calling me a writer long before I'd be willing to call myself a writer in Scotland. I had a friend um, in primary school who was a really close friend. I spent a lot of time with her. And in the final year of primary school, her dad, who was a professor, got a year's teaching post in an American college. And so they, the family went to live in America for a year and went to, children went to school there. And when she came back, she talked about having been classified as a gate child in America, which was gifted and talented education and I remember at the time thinking whoa you've changed <laughs> you know when she came back <laughs> not in a bad way I mean she she sat at the top table in primary school as things were classified in those days when you did your Friday test and then sat in the order of your results within the class I know I know the top table and the bottom table. I was talking to my children about this the other day and they were absolutely mortified that there would be a bottom table where the people who hadn't scored highly in last Friday's test sat for the whole week. Well, I mean, the Americans take it too far now for me because everybody's talented at something, you know, and no, there are no winners and all the rest of it. And in principle, that's lovely. And for little children, that's great. But the reality is when you get out into the working world, there are winners. There are people who get the job and people who don't. I think the problem is, you know, you've got lots of 20-year-olds out there not understanding why they might not have gotten a job. And that's just not the way the world works. But equally, you know, you don't need to tell a six-year-old that they're never going to be able to play sport or draw or whatever it is. But yeah, it's definitely a difference in the way that we perceive joy, I think, or the, the way that you're allowed to express it. I don't know because I've, you know, I've done all my mothering in, in the UK, so I don't know how that would be different in the States, but it would be interesting. I definitely notice, and my kids notice, you know, that I'm much more kind of open about joy when I'm in the States. So maybe I should just bring that in. Watch yeah. out, folks. 
Definitely. <laughs> New chirpy, um, super chirpy, very cake-filled Marjorie after lockdown. <laughs> Shall we quickly round up what's been happening this week just uh, before we finish up today? Yeah, so a couple of nice things from me that we've had uh, the Aberdeen ESOL group put together their first group poem online, which has been absolutely lovely. Um, and we think we've had some messages back and I think we'll get our Mary Hill group up and running from the Mary Hill Integration Network in the coming weeks, which is really exciting. It's a group that I've been working with for years and um, they're a raucous group of 20 odd women from all over the world translating to each other around a table. So I'm really curious to see how that'll work on Zoom, but I can't wait. And I loved hearing from one of our um, Zoom groups that happened our shared reading groups that happened online this week they were reading the Hebridean love song story and the reference of the kiss which made them have a conversation about all the things that they had been keeping for good and not using keeping for a special occasion and how lockdown had in some way made them want to use those precious things and use them more and not keep them for good so much I thought that was a really nice thought yeah I'm all for not keeping things for good because you know we never use them in that case so I just want to remind folks that our deadline for the pamphlet is the 15th of June. So if you've got writing that you've done with us, please do send it to us because we'd love to include it or consider it for the pamphlet. I think we'll probably do what we did last year, which is to send it out to an outside editor so that um, we don't have to choose because we find it really hard to choose which pieces should make it in. But we'd love to see it and um, love to consider it for inclusion. If you have anything, you could just drop us an email at info at openbookreading.com and we will put it in the pile to be sent off to our external editor which is always such a relief with the, the very first attempt we made to produce our first pamphlet Margie and I uh, sat down with all the pieces and read them and we lasted about an hour and then we thought there's absolutely no way we're going to be able to choose so we enlisted uh, some help. It's hard because you can hear the voices you know when you know the people which is not far enough away from you all in any in any way to be able to make those decisions. And I think the last thing I really wanted to mention was just to put a request out in relation to our online Zoom sessions. We've been absolutely delighted and overwhelmed by the response from people signing up for these sessions. We are finding that we have more people trying to sign up than we have spaces available. So we're experimenting with using a waiting list system just so that we make sure that every session is as, as full as we can possibly make it. But for that to work, we need you to cancel a place you've booked if it turns out you can no longer use it really straightforward to cancel it. You go onto Eventbrite, you go to tickets, select your order and then just click cancel for the ticket that you can no longer use. And that way the waiting list kicks in and the next person is able to take that place. So if you were able to help us with that, we'd really, really appreciate it. I think that's all from us this week. Um, Thanks for joining us at Open Book Unbound. We look forward to being in your ears again soon. 